This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hi, I'm Emory Brown. I'm a professor at Harvard Medical School, an anesthesiologist at Mass General Hospital, and a professor of computational neuroscience at MIT. And in this presentation, I'm going to tell you about the dynamics of the anesthetized brain. In the previous presentation, I showed that a primary way through which anesthetics work is by producing oscillations or dynamics that disrupt brain communication. The brain isn't turned off. And I'm going to expand on that theme and show you what other things we've learned about anesthetics as they act in the brain. And so here's a brief overview. I'm going to go back over a little bit of what I told you in the first lecture, like what general anesthesia is. And then what I want to show you is, is an idea which I call Breme's principle. All anesthesia, all anesthetics, pardon me, produce slow delta oscillations. And then I'm going to show you a little bit about what happens to the response to anesthesia as a function of age. And then I'm going to introduce an idea called reanimation. In anesthesiology, we typically think about anesthetizing patients, rendering them into the state of anesthesia so that they can have surgery. And when they, the coming out is passive, we turn the agents off and we let them come out. But maybe we could turn the brain back on, and that's what we're calling reanimation. So what is general anesthesia? So it's a drug-induced reversible state that consists of unconsciousness, amnesia, meaning you don't remember, analgesia, meaning you don't, meaning you don't feel pain, akinesia, meaning you're not moving as the surgeons are operating, with stability and control of the principal physiologic systems. And as I said before, we have some good ideas now about how anesthesia works. We think it works by producing oscillations that disrupt how the parts of the brain communicate. And that's what I showed you in the previous lecture with propofol as an example. Propofol binds to GABA receptors. These receptors are on neurons. Neurons then alter the way in which they spike, and on a gross level, what that does is it alters the current flows in the brain. By altering these current flows, by altering, by altering these current flows, you change how the various parts of the brain communicate. And what I'm showing you here in this diagram is the targets for GABA, these GABA receptors, are everywhere in the brain. And I'm showing you three principal regions up in the cortex, up front, in the middle there in the thalamus and down in the brainstem. So the substrate on which these drugs, can, uh, this, these drugs can act are basically everywhere throughout the brain and central nervous system. So they bind, they generate these changes in dynamics, and it looks something like this. So when someone is conscious, your brain waves look like this, and two of the, two of the uh, principal brain regions that we discussed before were the thalamus and cortex. The thalamus, again, being the central way station, which transmits and receives information, all types of brain information, sensation, auditory information, pain information, visual information, and the cortex, which is the frontal cortex, which you usually think of as being there associated with or controlling reasoning. So if the two areas are communicating, when someone's conscious, there's just a free flow of information back and forth between the two. And the brain waves measured by the EEG look something like I'm showing you there. Low amplitude, roughly high frequency. 
you administer a drug like propofol, and those low-amplitude, high-frequency oscillations turn into large-amplitude, low-frequency oscillations. In this case, there are two of them. You see you have a low-frequency low oscillation like this, and then a, still a larger ampli uh, an, ampli an oscillation of about the same amplitude riding on top. One is at about 1 to 4 cycles per second, the other is about 10 cycles per second. The slower one is called the slower delta oscillation, the faster one is called the alpha oscillation. And it looks like this, and instead of having a nice free flow of information back between the thalamus and cortex, the alpha oscillation is producing this very rhythmic communication between the thalamus and cortex, which makes it, which changes the way these two brain regions communicate, and we believe is one of the ways in which the drugs are making patients unconscious. So, and I showed you before that in the operating room, it would look something like this. You would see what we call a spectrogram. We break the oscillations down into their fre and by frequencies so we can see how strong the components are at the different frequencies. And if you look here on this particular graph, this was a young woman I took care of who was 19 years old. She was having a short operation. I gave her propofol, and in the beginning, she had slow oscillations. Then those slow oscillations turned into slow oscillations as well as alpha oscillations, where you see the two red bands there. The upper red band is the 10 hertz oscillation. The lower red band are the slow oscillations, which are between, as I said, about one to four cycles per second. And this is the signature of propofol in a young person. And this way of displaying the oscillations makes it easier to see the characteristics of them than just showing the trace that as it might be on the on the, the raw trace as it might appear on the monitor. All right? So what I want to show you now is I showed you the propofol produced slow oscillations, but it turns out that each of the anesthetics we use also produces slow oscillations. It's because they all have targets in the brainstem. Now, why do I say this? So for this, I'll have to go back to 1935, and a Belgian physiologist named Frederick Breme did a series of experiments. In the first set of experiments, he, he did these in cats. He severed the spinal cord from the brainstem and brain at A there, and he measured the EEG of the cats in those conditions. And he saw what appeared to be an awake-appearing EEG, and he called this state meaning the isolated encephalon. Then he did a second set of experiments in another set of cats in which he severed the brainstem together with the spinal cord from the brain. And he termed this preparation the cerveau isolé, brain or isolated cerebrum. And then what he saw was slow delta oscillations in the EEG. So this gave us the idea that somewhere in the brainstem were the centers which were responsible for arousal or driving what appears to be the awake state. So the corollary of that is if you take away the inputs coming from these areas of the brain and you're measuring EEG, what you'll see is slow oscillations. And that's indeed what the anesthetics demonstrate. So we'll just go through a couple of examples. Here's a drug called dexmedetomidine, which we use mostly for sedation or as an anesthetic adjunct, sedation in the intensive care unit or as an anesthetic adjunct in the operating room. 
And in the first panel, I'm showing you a pattern which we frequently see where you have what are called spindles. They look like the alpha oscillations, but they're a little lighter. They, they, they don't have the same sort of regular rhythm. They're sort of evanescent. They're like this. The alpha oscillation is... And at the same time, you see there's slow oscillations there as well. So what's interesting about this drug is it produces a state which looks very much like non-REM sleep. So in the upper panel, where you see the spindles and the slow oscillations, that looks very much like non-REM stage 2 sleep. And as a lower panel, where you just have pretty much predominantly slow oscillations, that looks like non-REM stage 3 sleep. Right? or slow-wave sleep. And you can see there's just a large slow-wave pattern down at the bottom of the slide there. Now, why would this happen? Well, it turns out that dexmedetomidine targets areas which are believed to help control sleep. And one of the areas down in the brainstem is the locus ceruleus, which is this area that comes out of the brainstem here and travels to the cortex, it travels to the central thalamus, it travels to the basal forebrain, and if you, the drug takes away the inputs that, the, that this region, that this nucleus transmits to those areas, by taking them away, you're creating like, you're, you're doing chemically what Breme did with, with experiments, you're taking away those inputs going to the thalamus and cortex, and lo and behold, you see the slow oscillations that I just showed you. So that's how this particular drug produces the slow oscillations. This is nitrous oxide, laughing gas. This is an actual recording from a patient in the operating room where we, we switched from using sevoflurane and ether to, to laughing gas. And we do that very often to wake the patient up because the, it's much easier to, to it's much easier to remove the nitrous oxide, have it breathe it off, than is let's say the ether. So it's a technique that we commonly use at our hospital when we're waking patients up. But what was so interesting about this is we had never really paid attention to what was happening to the EEG. This is something we did. So when we looked at the EEG, you see almost perfect sine waves. And they're actually perfect in this particular case sine waves that are about two, the, their, their, their period is about um, one second or so. So they go up and down about, or um, their period is about a half a second. They go up and down about two times in a second. So this is amazing. I mean, think about it. You saw what the other EEG activity looked like. It's like these drug, this drug is producing like almost perfect sinusoidal oscillations. Now, what's interesting about this, it comes on, but it doesn't last. It, it, it lasts from somewhere between 3 to 12 minutes, and then it, it transitions to higher frequency oscillations. But in this state, the person is probably profoundly unconscious. And what we think is transpiring is that the drug, again, will apply Breme's principle. We should look for something coming out of the brainstem to explain this. So coming out of the brainstem is a very important pathway called the parabrachial nucleus. This nucleus releases 
glutamate, and it it's, uses glutamate as its neurotransmitter. So it's believed that nitrous oxide blocks this release of glutamate. So there's the target in the brainstem. This drug is preventing the transmission of information from the brainstem to the thalamus and cortex. And again, by Breme's principle, we predict we see slow oscillations, and that's indeed what we, what we find. So a final example, ketamine. Ketamine is a drug that we widely use in anesthesia to treat pain. It produces hallucinations. And in recent years, it's found uh, to be very useful in helping certain patients that have chronic depression receive almost immediate relief from the depressive symptoms. And ketamine produces a very interesting pattern. If you just give low-dose ketamine, the, the dose range in which someone hallucinates, you'll just see high-frequency oscillations like I'm showing here in the top panel. You see high-frequency oscillations. You wouldn't see those, those large blips at all. You just see high-frequency oscillations. But when you give a larger dose so that someone could be essentially anesthetized, you get a combination of the high-frequency patterns and the low-frequency patterns, and the two alternate. It goes high-frequency, low-frequency, high-frequency, low-frequency. And that's what I'm showing you here. And again, by Breme's principle, these, os these low-frequency oscillations should have a brainstem origin. And it's roughly the same argument that we use for it's roughly the same argument that we use for uh, nitrous oxide. This um, ketamine also acts by blocking glutamate, the release of glutamate, probably in the brainstem from the parabrachial nucleus. And in this case, the connection is going up to the thalamus, the connection is going up to the cortex. They're severed, and that's probably what's producing these slow oscillations, slower delta oscillations. It's not they're, they have different properties with compared with nitrous oxide as far as the, uh, the, the high-frequency oscillations are concerned because there, that's a very, very specific effect of ketamine acting to inhibit inhibitory neurons before it inhibits the excitatory neurons. So there's a little bit of subtlety there. But the main point that I want to make here is that ketamine, just like propofol, just like dexmedetomidine, produces slow oscillations and there seems to be a brainstem mechanism. So let me tell you about the anesthesia, re the response of the brain to anesthesia as a function of age. So this is, this is a, the spectrogram of a 30-year-old gentleman who's under propofol anesthesia. You can see the very strong alpha oscillations and the slow oscillation. We've talked about that. Now here is someone who's 57. Like the 57-year-old gentleman could be the 30-year-old gentleman's father. They both have slow oscillations. They both have alpha oscillations. And if you look carefully, you see how the, the alpha oscillations seem to be a little bit weaker in the older gentleman than in the, the younger gentleman. But they're still there. They're still present. And there's another little subtle difference. They had a slightly lower frequency band, maybe more like 8 to 12, as opposed to the younger person's band, oscillations being between 10 to 15. But nevertheless, they're there. Look at this, though. Here's a woman who's 81 years old. This was a lady I took care of who had a tumor on her chest the size of an American football, and it took the thoracic surgeons the better part of six and a half hours to remove the tumor. Um, I was using the EEG to monitor her, and you can see she has 
very weak alpha oscillations, very weak slow oscillations. And in addition to that, you see how everything is blue above. So there's a very profound absence of oscillations, let's say, in the gamma range, usually 25 to, let's say, 40 hertz or so, where we usually think about rhythms that are used for communication would normally be found. So she has an absence of the normal communication rhythms, and she has these very, very weak alpha oscillations and, and slow oscillations. And one of the good things about using the EEG is I was taking care of her. I was able to titrate the drugs very precisely to her EEG and know exactly when she was receiving enough, an, enough of the anesthetics to be unconscious. Now here's the part which is sobering. This gentleman here is about the same age as the gentleman to, on, the, on the left. They're about the same age. One is 56, one is 57. The 57-year-old's EEG looks more like the 30-year-old's, whereas the 56-year-old's EEG looks more like the 81-year-old. And you look at this and you go, wow, that's interesting. What's going on? Well, we age different physically. Perhaps our braids age differently as well. It makes sense. And, but what's, what's even more intriguing about it is that we might discover it under anesthesia. So here's one way to think about it. So forget about anesthesia for the purpose of, of rendering somebody into a state so they can undergo surgery. Think of this as an experiment. What we're going to do is give you a stimulus. In this case, the stimulus is a drug that will make your brain oscillate. Okay. So when you're young, you can oscillate. Your brain oscillates like this. And as you get older, the oscillations become weaker. And the point at which they become weaker, or the rate at which they become weaker, in some sense probably depends upon brain health. Right? So let's take this a little bit further. So you, you can probably guess what the kids look like. So there's a three-year-old. There's a 14-year-old. Right? You can see that you have the same patterns across all the age groups. It's just that the power across the different bands changes as a function of age. And here's a nice little summary of that here. So this is just an empirical observation that we, we did, that we made, where we just looked at the amplitude of the oscillation, the, ma the maximum amplitude of the oscillation, as a function of age. And if you look there, you see there's a peak about 68 years of age. Then after that, it's all downhill, right? And the the 81-year-old woman is way out to the is way out to the right. So the brain is changing its response to anesthesia. And one of the implications of this for us is that as we take care of patients, we have to we should take this into account as we dose our drugs, and it helps us understand it helps us understand the responses of the brain to anesthesia and helps us and helps us choose our our our, our drugs differently. So what happens when you're even younger? You know, the youngest person I showed you there was about three years of age. So here's a three-month-old. So the three-month-old just has slow oscillations everywhere. No alpha oscillations or anything like that. And then seemingly something magical happens at four months of age. At four months of age, you actually start to see the oscillations over the entire head. And again, 
why would this be picked up under anesthesia and another as opposed to some other some other or in an as opposed to in an experimental setup and again it's one of these things where we just haven't paid attention to the responses of the brain to anesthesia the same way we've we've looked at how the brain responds to other other phenomena and what this suggests is that there's some developmental changes that occur in those first three months that are reflected in how the drug responds to the anesthetic. So suggesting that, you know, anesthesia not only is something for making it possible to undergo surgery, but may also be a tool for studying the brain and, and its circuits. So, but just to fill out the, the point about the, uh, the aging brain. So what happened to the aging brain? Why is that 81-year-old woman's EEG, why does it have lower amplitude oscillations than, let's say, the 30-year-olds? The well, all you have to do is take a neuron and think about its various parts, and then think about what happens to those parts as the brain ages. So first of all, as we get older, we produce less neurotransmitter. As we get older, the dendrites, which receive information from other neurons, they don't retract and extend as much. Their dynamics are actually decreased. The myelin sheath, the insulation along the neuron, breaks down. So the transmission of the action potentials, the electrical impulses, is, degrades. The mitochondria, the powerhouse of the, of the cell, decrease in function. And also, the cells lose volume, and on a macro level, this would look like a decrease, like an increase in the ventricular size if we were to look at an older person on uh, an MRI image. So you don't have to invoke, invoke anything like dementia or Alzheimer's. Just think of an aging neuron, and you have cables, which essentially have been around for 81 years, and the fidelity with which they can transmit signals just declines because each of the components of the cable is 81 years is 81 years old. So <clears throat> let's talk about reanimation. As I said, we give you drugs or we give a patient drugs in order to render him or her unconscious and sensate so they can tolerate surgery. But the really important thing is waking someone up because as I like to say anyone can knock you out, anesthesiologists bring you back. The New York Times did a piece on our laboratory a few years ago, and this was one of the letters to the editor. It read, I had my corrective surgery for, due to infantile paralysis, that's prolio, in 1949. The bill for the anesthesiologist was $400. My mother was horrified, but my father calmed her when he said it was probably $50 for the procedure, but I gladly, but I gladly pay the other $350 because he knew how to wake her up. Right? The important thing is not just anesthetizing the patient, but bringing them back. Also, as I mentioned, at the moment, this is a passive process. We time how we turn off the drugs, and we let the person come back. My colleague, Ken Solt, at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, has been studying how to turn the brain back on. And I just want to show you an example of that. So he's been testing this idea in, in rats. So here's a, nat, a rat who's been anesthetized for about 20 minutes. And what Ken is going to do, he's going to give him an injection of Methylphenidate. Methylphenidate is Ritalin, the same Ritalin that we use to treat ADHD. So he injects the Ritalin. Remember, we don't turn the anesthesia off. And what he does is 
He now flushes it into the animal, and look what happens. He comes to. Now, <clears throat> for this experimental paradigm, the animal has to turn over in order for us to really grade him as having woken up by, by this particular protocol. And he's managed to get his feet caught there in the wires. But you can see he's making very, very purposeful, very determined, a very determined effort to turn himself over. And, and he does make it. I've seen the end of the video. All right. So you can do it. Come on. A little. Oh, he made it. Okay. That was close there for a while. All right. So before we talk science, let's talk about what I call science from the word on the street. So this is an article that appeared in the New York Times back in April of 2015. It was the story of this woman who has a startup company, and her investors tell her that they want a new financial plan on their, de on, on their desk first thing in the morning. She calls up her dealer. He brings a bag of pills to her apartment in New York, and she gives him a wad of cash. She gulps down one of the pills, and then after thinking about it, she decides to take another one of the pills. And then shortly thereafter, you see what it says there? Several minutes later, she felt her brain snap to attention. She pushed up her glasses and worked essentially for the next seven hours straight. And so this is something in which we see a lot of, and that's what this article is about, people abusing these stimulants. People in regular jobs taking these as a matter of course. This is not a good idea. It's actually very, very dangerous. But what I want to point out here is, you see where she said she felt her brain snap to attention. Maybe this is an idea that we could use when patients' brains have been discombobulated with anesthetics to help return to a, function, a normally functioning state. Because particularly with older patients, the likelihood of having some sort of brain dysfunction ranging from delirium to postoperative cognitive dysfunction that could last for several months is fairly high, depending on what study you want to look at, between 20 to 40, maybe even 50%, in some form or another. So maybe one of the things that we should do is, in addition to monitoring the brain better with the EEG, is come up with some ideas to turn the brain back on. So I'm going to show you an example of that. Now remember, that rat, he got up, but could he function, right? Could he actually execute a task? So to test that idea, Ken did a second study. So first what he did was he trained the rat to go back and press the correct lever, uh, a correct touchpad, and then if he pressed the correct touchpad, he could turn around behind himself and get a reward. So he comes up, he presses the correct touchpad, gets a reward. All right? So what Ken does now is he anesthetizes the rat, and while he's anesthetized, so the rat is trained to execute this task, he anesthetizes him, and before he anesthetizes him, he implants an electrode in his ventral tegmental area. So the ventral tegmental area, as I'll show you in a bit, is an area which is responsible for reward, but it's also responsible for arousal. So what he does is he anesthetizes the rat, stimulates the ventral tegmental area. Now you're going to see the animal's going to wake up. We don't turn the anesthesia off. He's going to wake up. And then what he's going to do is he's going to go back to work. He realizes, oh, I'm in the box where I can get my reward. So he goes back to work. And we're going to let him work for a few minutes, 
And then what Ken is going to do, he's going to turn the stimulation off, and the animal is going to become anesthetized again. So Ken is actually controlling this animal's level of arousal. Here, let me play the video for you. So there's the animal. There's no stimulation on. He's actually anesthetized. You can see the cable there that connects to the stimulating electrode that's in his ventral tegmental area. So now, in just a second, Ken is going to turn the stimulation on. So he turns the stimulation on. The animal comes to. The anesthesia is not turned off, remember. He goes to the reward box, but just like in life, there's no free lunch, so he has to work. So he hits the correct, hits the correct symbol, he comes back and gets a reward. Now he turns around again. Ken changed the stimulation to 20 hertz. He hits the correct symbol. He's a little wobbly, but he's doing what he was trained to do. Right? Now, he turns around a second time here. I think he, he gets this one wrong. Yeah, he got that wrong. So the light tells him he got it wrong. Right? So now he turns around again. So now he's going to turn around for another trial. And watch what happens. Ken's going to turn the stimulation off. So the trial's set. The lights come on. Ken turns the stimulation off. And he's back out again. So he was only awake because Ken was stimulating his ventral tegmental area. So, what's happening here? So, how does Ritalin work? Well, Ritalin works by increasing dopamine in the brain. It increases dopamine in this pathway called the mesocortical pathway. It means pathway going from the midbrain out to the cortex up there. All right? So, that's different from the nigrostriatal pathway, which I've also shown there, which is the one implicated in Parkinson's disease. Right? So this mesocortical pathway is also important in reward, but it's important in cognition. So when you're taking, or when a patient is taking Ritalin, they're actually taking advantage of this particular pathway here. And Ritalin blocks the reuptake of dopamine, so dopamine is removed from the brain by being taken back up into the cells that released it. And so if you block that, you keep the level of dopamine in the brain high. And then the other way that you can, you can create this effect is by giving Ritalin, or as Ken was doing in this experiment, electrically, by electrically stimulating the, the ventral tegmental area directly, or with, elect, with electricity, or optogenetically. So this is an idea. This idea of giving Ritalin is, a, is, a, is something that Ken is studying as a way to turn the brain back on after anesthesia. So what have I told you? As I said, the brain under anesthesia is not turned off. It's actually quite dynamic. I've shown you a little bit more about how the oscillations are likely to be a mechanism through which the drugs produce altered states of arousal, in particular in consciousness, and that all the anesthetics produce slow oscillations because they have targets in the brainstem that take away inputs going up to thalamus and cortex. You can see why, because these oscillations are so readily visible in the EEG, they change systematically with age, that this offers a, a very compelling paradigm for being able to, for tracking the state of patients' brains under anesthesia, and also designing control systems. And I've shown you a little bit about reanimation, turning the brain back on. And as I said before, this may be a way to not only speed recovery, but maybe re help reduce the incidence of postoperative cognitive function and delirium which frequently occurs in elderly patients after anesthesia and surgery. 
So I've told you about the implications of studying anesthesia for the sake of anesthesia, but the implications are even broader because anesthesia connects very broadly with a number of issues and problems in clinical neuroscience. And I've just listed a few here. So for example, I have epilepsy up there. We have an anesthetic drug like methyl, methyl, <coughs> like methylhexatol, which is a barbiturate. At low doses, it actually induces seizures, but at higher doses, you can use it to treat a seizure. Or I have locked-in syndrome there. If you give a combination of droperidol and fentanyl, it produces a locked-in syndrome in patients. Right? It's like this sort of this very powerful antidopaminergic state that's created by the combination of those two drugs. Or as another illustration, I mentioned ketamine earlier being used to treat pain. It's a model for schizophrenia. And now it's being used to treat chronic depression. And if you think about what we just talked about, waking someone up from anesthesia, it's a drug-induced reversible coma. Maybe some of these ideas could be applied to help bring people out of coma or help in increase their level, their level of arousal. So, what I'm showing you is that we think about, as we think about anesthesia as a neuroscience phenomenon, we take seriously studying the neurophysiology of anesthesia, it's very clear that we can improve care of patients requiring anesthesia for surgery. But I think there are even broader implications for using this as a way to study the brain and then for maybe finding solutions to other problems or, or related problems in clinical neuroscience. So, thank you very much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Lasker Foundation.